Hey everyone, so this is going to be my last episode before I start my maternity leave. And I'm so excited to enter into this new journey, but also kind of sad to be leaving you guys behind for a little bit. I am really, really thankful for all of my friends in the podcast community who have helped me out with future episodes. And I know you're just going to enjoy them because they have really great voices and the stories and content that they're giving us are really, really interesting. So I just want to thank you for your support. And I'll be checking in on social media to make sure you remember that Lainey is still the host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. But anyways, that's enough of the business. I'll talk to you real soon. Explicit content is found in this episode. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to the True Crime Fan Club podcast. I'm your host, Lainey. Thrill killers are individuals who find intense stimulation and excitement by causing their victims pain or terror before their deaths. Once their prey is dead, they lose interest and often move on to another victim. These types of kills are typically not sexual and don't result in mutilation, as the power and pleasure comes from the pain inflicted. Spree killers are those who kill at least three victims in a short period of time usually close together chronologically, although separated geographically. Today's episode discusses a murderer who falls into both categories. Okay, on to the show. In early July 1995, several people were violently killed in seemingly random attacks. Although the acts were random, they were quickly connected to the same suspect. Between 1 a.m. and 8 a.m. Sunday, July 2nd, were the worst series of slayings Dallas officers could remember, according to Sergeant Gary Kirkpatrick of the Homicide Division. The spree began when Juan Rodriguez Chavez, 27 years old, and Hector Fernandez, 15 at the time, stole a Chevy Caprice at a Greyhound maintenance facility. They cruised for a while in the West Dallas area, then visited Zaps, a nightclub situated on the West Northwest Highway. They ran into people from their neighborhood there and hung out for a little while, before deciding to leave to find a party. The four acquaintances left, Juan and Hector and the Caprice, and their friends following behind in a truck. They then drove to an apartment complex near the Lovefield Airport. Jose Morales, 39 years old, was talking on a payphone. Yadira Ramirez was also standing in proximity of the payphones. Juan pulled up beside the phone booth and smiled broadly. Are you still on the line? When Jose stepped out of the booth to answer, Juan got out of the stolen vehicle and calmly shot him in the chest. He then took Jose's wallet and shot Jose once more. Jose later died at the hospital. There were just two dollars inside of his wallet. Juan sped off in the Caprice with his stunned friend still following. They met in an empty parking lot a short distance away. One of the two men in the truck got out to talk to Juan and Hector. He returned a minute later and had said that Juan told him, If you tell anyone about what you saw you're going to get the same thing. They decided to abandon Juan and Hector, who then drove the stolen car to a construction site where they shot Susan Ferguson, a security guard, in the head. 
They also ran her over and robbed her. Before she was shot, Juan asked her, Do you have any children? Then shot her in the face. Nearly an hour later, Juan shot another security guard, Kevin Hancock. Kevin worked at a West Oak apartment complex. They also robbed Kevin, stealing a 9mm pistol. This attack left Kevin permanently paralyzed from the two point-blank shots fired into his neck. Ten minutes after this slaying, the pair were in East Oak Cliff, where they encountered three men beside the road. Juan shot and killed Jesus Brasenio, 22 years old, with a shotgun, while his companion Hector shot and wounded Francisco James and Alberto Guevara with a 9mm stolen from Kevin Hancock. One of the survivors said he had tossed a money clip on top of the caprice, but wasn't sure if either man had taken it. Around an hour later, Juan and Hector drove back to the West Oak apartment complex where they had killed Kevin. Alfonso Contreras and Guadalupe Delgadillo Peña were sitting in Alfonso's truck making out. When Alfonso refused to give Juan his wallet, Juan fired into the truck, killing Alfonso and injuring Guadalupe. Juan climbed into the truck with both victims and left the area, with Hector following behind. A short while later, Juan pushed Alfonso from the truck and ran over his body. He and Hector drove to the Trinity River, where Juan pushed Guadalupe out of the truck and ran her over. He then ordered Hector to shoot her, because she wasn't dead yet. So Hector did. Around 4 o'clock in the morning, Juan drove the stolen truck to an exit off I-20 and set it ablaze. The men then left the area. Juan struck again on July 4, 1995. He picked a fight with two men in the parking lot of a tire shop on West Davis. He told them, If you don't move that piece of shit car, I'm gonna fill your ass full of lead. One of the men told him to go ahead, so Juan obliged, killing Antonio Rios, 27 years old, and Manuel Duran, 31 years old. He quickly reversed the vehicle, taking a shot at Antonio Banda as he did. Antonio, 53 years old, was standing in his mother's front yard and was fatally wounded. Antonio was described as a devoted son who was visiting his sick mother when he was gunned down. He had gone outside to lock his car when Juan shot him in the chest. On July 23rd, Juan Carlos Macias was killed during a hijacking while driving on West Canty Street. He was only 16 years old and was shot in the head during the hijacking. Juan was arrested in early August when he reported to his parole officer. Juan was on a parole for a 1985 murder he had committed. In December of that year, Juan and two of his friends had committed a home invasion in the home of Raul and Vicente Mendoza. Vicente was killed and Raul partially blind. Juan was arrested and convicted of murder and aggravated assault. He was sentenced to 15 years in prison and spent seven years in many of the toughest prisons in the state of Texas. Juan was a part of a very large family. He was one of 19 children. His mother and father had been married for at least 35 years by the time he went on a crime rampage. His father was a construction worker, and most of Juan's siblings had completed high school, found jobs, and had been married. Juan, however, 
dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. Until he was arrested in 1985, he had not been in any trouble with the police. Juan went into prison as a run-of-the-mill juvenile delinquent, but came out as a member of one of the toughest gangs in Texas. Just a few months after he had arrived in prison in 1987, Juan was singled out for membership in the infamous Hispanic prison gang known as the Texas Syndicate. You can imagine the Texas Syndicate as a large tree with multiple branches and vines stretching across all prison units in Texas and extending outwards even outside the high razor wire fences. If a member of the syndicate refuses to carry out an order to kill someone or rats out another member, the syndicate can take care of the disobedient member even after they have been released. Even more horrific and terrifying, they can take out family members. Juan Chavez made a name for himself as a bad guy in prison. Beginning in 1988, he accumulated more than 40 citations for breaking prison rules. Sometimes these were minor offenses, such as refusing to work at jobs he had been assigned. But others were major offenses. In 1989, Juan was housed at the Ellis II unit in Huntsville, which is where death row inmates were housed. He fought so often with other inmates that he could not leave his cell without an official escort. The next year, he was given solitary confinement for beating a fellow inmate so severely that the other man nearly died. While at the Beto One unit in Palestine, Texas, called the tightest lockup we have, Juan shimmied up a fence topped with razor wire to get to another inmate. Guards assumed this was a hit he was ordered by the syndicate to carry out. He also attacked a guard at one point while in prison. Despite his offenses in prison, Juan was paroled in April 1994 because of the prison population cap set in place by U.S. District Judge William Wayne Justice. Once he returned to Dallas, Juan moved in with his sister Isabel, who said he was a different person when he came home. He kept the house for her and babysat her two children. Juan tried to get a job, but was limited to a few odd jobs because he was a high school dropout with a felony record. However, despite being labeled a model parolee by his parole officer, Juan began acting out at night, taking along the teenage Hector Fernandez. Hector started hanging out with Juan soon after Juan was paroled. Juan always had firearms, usually two or three, including Tech Nines. Hector later said he learned more about weapons than anything he had learned in school. On March 22nd, less than a year after he had been paroled, Juan, Hector, and Juan's girlfriend were cruising around in a Lincoln, belonging to the girlfriend's father. Hector told investigators they were looking for rims, and when Juan found a set of rims he liked on at a car wash, he pulled into the car wash and pulled out a gun on the driver, demanding his keys. Juan shot him, and then the three drove off with the car keys, but not the car. This was Juan's first victim in 1995. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? Trust me, I have been there and I still struggle with these issues. 
but BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you like it's been there for me. You can connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment, which is so convenient for me, and it really makes me feel comfortable. You can now get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist whenever you need to. They have licensed professional counselors who are specialized in LGBTQ matters. Grief, self-esteem, trauma, relationships, anxiety, you name it. Anything you share with them is confidential. And if you're not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. They have over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, and they're available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours. The best thing is it's secure, convenient, professional, affordable, and it's not a crisis line. Best of all, like I said, it's a truly affordable option. True Crime Fan Club podcast listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code TCFC. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com TCFC. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com TCFC to get 10% off your first month. On May 20th, Hector and Juan were cruising again when they saw a Buick Regal with rims they coveted. The pair carjacked and shot the driver, Juan Pablo Hernandez, in the parking lot of La Favorita Market. This time, they kept the car and took it to the chop shop. Juan didn't keep anything, which was the norm for him, but Hector kept the stereo system. When Juan and Hector were arrested, two other men were also arrested. Michael Anthony Martinez and Luis Canales were arrested as accomplices in at least four of the murders. Michael had given several statements to investigators that he and Luis were involved in the attacks. However, Michael, who did know Juan, later complained that his confessions were coerced. The case was referred to internal affairs, and eventually, the charges against the pair were dropped. When Hector was arrested, he promised to testify in exchange for use of immunity or freedom from being prosecuted by making self-implicating statements. Hector was considered slow, but he was able to recall the murders very well. He also provided information from several unsolved gankings in the area. What puzzled prosecutors the most was that Juan seemingly had no motive for his crimes. He didn't keep or fence the stolen items. He didn't know the victims, and ironically, most of them were Hispanic. He was even known for disparaging Mexican immigrants, calling them all types of racial slurs. The trial for Juan began on March 18, 1996. The first day of the trial was electrifying. Juan was sitting at the defense table when he suddenly leaned forward, hands drawn to his chest, and said, I'm getting shocked. Multiple people reported that Juan had boasted he was going to escape during his trial. He was going to disarm an officer and shoot his way out of the courthouse. Therefore, the trial judge approved the use of a stun belt for his court appearances. One of the bailiffs rushed to assist Juan, pulling the belt away from Juan's skin until the eight-second shock had finished. Court was recessed for the rest of the day while Juan was medically checked out. 
He only had a small red blister where the contact was made and felt no other ill effects. Court officials said they were concerned he had faked the shock, but otherwise were at a loss for why it had happened. An emergency hearing was held the same afternoon, where the judge heard testimony that the shock was inadvertent and not caused by Juan or either of the two certified stun belt operators in the room. Juan's attorney immediately called for a mistrial, however. The next morning, each juror was questioned individually to see if they knew what was going on the day before and if this impacted their ability to be impartial. Seven of the twelve correctly believed he was shocked by some type of restraining device, but were not sure what that could be. Two jurors thought he had been shocked but didn't know what caused it, while the remaining three saw the commotion but had no idea what had caused it. The entire jury stated they could remain fair and impartial. The judge struck down the defense attorney's request for a mistrial. He said, I find that while varying degrees of perception was as indicated by the records showed that the jurors saw or heard something, I find that which they recall having happened in no way would impinge or infringe upon the presumption of innocence guaranteed to Mr. Chavez under the Constitution and laws of the state of Texas and the United States. During the trial, photographs were shown of Jose Morales's wounds, causing his family members to sob. Juan was witnessed to be in a good mood, grinning and would often smirk at his victims' families. In fact, he had told bailiffs he would antagonize the families. He said, You ever seen a courtroom full of mad Mexicans? You ought to see them when I walk in the courtroom smiling. I'm not going to let them see me sweat. When the judge asked Juan if he had any reason he should not be sentenced, Juan replied, I still say I'm not guilty. In March 1996, the jury found otherwise. Juan Chavez was guilty of capital murder for the slaying of Jose Morales. On March 26, 1996, after a separate punishment hearing, the jury deliberated for two and a half hours before sentencing him to death. This was automatically appealed to the Texas Court of Appeals, but the conviction and sentencing were upheld in an unpublished opinion on April 7, 1999. In 2002, Juan filed a petition for a certificate of appealability based on the incident with the Sun Belt. On April 22, 2003, a grinning Juan Chavez was led into the death chamber while his mother, a brother, and a sister looked on. He'd had no final meal beforehand, but did have final words. To the media, I would like for you to tell all the victims and their loved ones that I am truly, truly sorry for taking their loved ones' lives. I am a different person now, but that does not change the fact of the bad things I have committed. He continued on, talking to his relatives. God is the way, the truth, and the life. He let the warden know he was ready and closed his eyes. A few seconds later, Wand opened his eyes and asked, Is it working? He closed his eyes again and began praying. He was pronounced dead at 6.18 p.m. He was the 13th inmate to be executed in Texas in 2003, and the first of two on consecutive nights. Jason January was one of the district attorneys from Dallas County who prosecuted Juan Chavez. 
he said. He was truly a living, breathing, killing machine. He was one of the few people I dealt with in 15 years with the DA's office that clearly demonstrated he enjoyed killing. He added, To shoot somebody, get a car and turn around and on several occasions take the tire of the vehicle and run over their head? That's sadistic. Susan Ferguson was 41 years old and had only had the security job for three months. She only took the job so she could buy her grandchildren clothes. Her daughter Jennifer told reporters she begged her mother not to take the job, to find something else, but Susan really wanted to buy clothes for the kids. Jennifer's daughter was only three years old when her grandmother was murdered and considered Susan to be her best friend. Guadalupe was only 24 years old when she was shot in the head, then ran over. She had only been in the United States for a year, having come from the small town of Ojuelos, Jalisco, Mexico, to try to make a better life for her and her family, who she was sending money to. Her family buried her in her hometown. Her sister began considering staying in Mexico because she was afraid something bad would happen to her or her son. Antonio's stepfather, John Lozano, heard the shots and ran outside. He said, I heard all kinds of shooting and I ran out and said, Tony, are you all right? And he said, I've been shot. John went back inside to call 911. And when he returned, Antonio had died. Sean Olguin was the older brother of Antonio Rios, one of the two men who were shot as they were leaving the tire shop for the night. Sean said his brother was a quiet man who held multiple jobs to support his family, a wife and a two-year-old daughter. Sean said their father had passed away from a heart attack just a few days after Antonio's murder, brought on by Antonio's death. According to Sean, their father and Antonio were very close and Antonio still relied on their father. Manuel Duran, the other man killed when leaving the tire shop, had made an arrangement with a friend to take over payments on the truck he was driving. It was believed that when Juan approached the pair, Manuel refused to give him the truck since he was making payments on it. Manuel had not been in Dallas long and did not speak much English. He had arrived from Mexico when his brother sold a family cow, but the family blamed it on Manuel. He was a hard worker and worked hard to please people. Every single one of these victims is deeply missed and mourned by their family. And this all happened because Juan Chavez needed a thrill. Okay, fan club members, as I conclude this episode, my one question to you is, how will you sleep tonight? Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a positive review and rating on Apple Podcast or your podcast player of choice. It really does help. You can find us on most social media channels, Twitter at TCFCPod, Facebook.com slash TCFCPodcast, Instagram at TrueCrimeFanClubPod, and of course, our website is TrueCrimeFanClub.com. If you have an episode request, send us an email, TCFCPod at gmail.com. This episode was researched and written by Susie St. John, content editing by Brittany Martinez, and of course, you know this has been produced by the best in the business, Neeks at We Talk of Dreams. Check him out on Twitter at We Talk of Dreams or on Twitch by searching We Talk of Dreams or visit his website, 
wetalkofdreams.com.